Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one, first degree murder, guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good the evening. Wrong this is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening and welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Tonight, in Episode 11, we're talking about State of Missouri versus Larry Griffin. In 1981, Griffin was convicted of capital murder in connection with the drive-by shooting death of Quentin Moss, a 19-year-old drug dealer in St. Louis, Missouri. Moss had been a suspect in the death of Griffin's brother, Dennis, which occurred in January of 1980. Griffin's 1995 execution was controversial due to claims of his actual innocence. A 2005 investigation sponsored by the NAACP concluded that there were doubts about Griffin's guilt. A subsequent investigation by the St. Louis City Circuit Attorney's Office reached a different conclusion. We'll talk about the evidence against Griffin the post-execution investigation that raised doubts about his guilt, and the investigation conducted by the St. Louis Circuit Attorney. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. Definitely glad to be here. Definitely excited about the uh, topic that we have here going tonight. Always a little bit more interesting when we have a death penalty case on the uh, on the agenda. Always, uh, always fun to uh, discuss these, and you know it's interesting. Of course, you know you look at the NAACP uh, investigation. Of course, they're going to find what they want to find. Just like you know, I would say the same. You can find what you want to find, no matter what. You can find evidence to quote unquote support your theory, no matter what. It's just a matter of is that evidence factual or not. Right, exactly. And uh, it's kind of a milestone for us because uh, tonight is our last live Tuesday night show. Yes, ma'am. We are actually moving to uh, 
Sunday nights. We kind of talked about this last week. We're kind of we're going to move to Sunday nights to uh, give Lisa and myself a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a break, but also uh, kind of not so much um, pressure on a I would say school night on a weeknight. Uh, where we have work right. the next day and everything going on. So we're hoping that this is going to take some of the pressure off of, especially Lisa with all the uh, all the studying she does. Correct. I just have to, I just have to carve out my time to print the stuff that I'm going to read on Saturdays and Sundays. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's that's the only slight challenge in the process. Um, we will have a an episode that we recorded that will be uploaded on Tuesday night, June 1st. So we're not leaving everyone totally in the lurch. There will be an episode next week. It just won't be a live episode. It will be one that we recorded earlier and we're going to upload so that we can have Memorial Day off. An episode. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and, and you let, know, me, let me again, jiggle my cord again. Oh no, that was me. yes. Oh, okay. That was my. I end, wasn't sure. I heard. I heard myself. Yeah, I had to uh, submit a quick dispute, and uh, on Facebook, whenever you submit disputes, anytime you change the page, the audio, whether you have it muted or not, automatically plays through. So you have to. Okay. I see. All right. Well, let's get to uh, State of Missouri versus Larry Griffin, and um, I think one of the one of the challenges in this case is that it does go back to 1980, pre-internet. Right. Absolutely. And so there isn't a lot of material available. Um, and also, Griffin's execution was in 1995. Now, I remember the uh, the claims in 1995 as his, as his execution date approached, and this is probably one of the earlier cases that I I researched independently and said, "Gosh, I wish somebody was out there giving this information." So mm-hmm. this is one of the cases many years ago that kind of inspired my desire to take a different approach to criminal cases. In fact, this is even before the West Memphis Three case. Okay. Or my involvement in the West Memphis Three case, more accurately. Right. Absolutely. Um, so I really don't know what that much about Quentin Moss or Larry Griffin. Uh, Larry Griffin came, though, I think from somewhat large family. And I know he had a brother, Lamont, and um, another brother named Dennis. But I'm not sure about his other siblings uh, or his or his parents or, you know, his school or upbringing or any of those things. I'm guessing it was probably inner city St. Louis uh, and they were not a family of of means. That they were mm-hmm. uh, a family who struggled. Okay. Uh, Larry was not involved 
per se in drugs. However, he was involved in criminal activity. Uh, he right. was born in 1953, 54, or 1954. Uh, by the time he was 20, he had been sentenced to three years on one charge and two years on a second charge of burglary in the second degree in the Missouri Department of Corrections. In 1975, he was arrested for stealing over $50,000. Um, again, in 1977, he was arrested for stealing, for theft under $50,000. He was granted probation for six months on that charge and given 30 days on a second charge. Uh, then in 1977, June 4th, he was arrested in St. Louis for felony possession of a controlled substance, misdemeanor assault, and possession of marijuana. Mm-hmm. And in that case, he was charged. He was sentenced to three years in Missouri Department of Corrections, concurrent with a three-year sentence for the uh, 1975 theft case, and 30 days for the misdemeanor charges of possession and assault. And then, in April 11th of 1979, he was sentenced to 10 years in the Missouri Department of Corrections for first-degree robbery, felony possession of controlled substance, and he was also sentenced to five years for burglary second degree, or rather he was sentenced to five years for burglary second degree and carrying a concealed weapon. I think that was like a plea bargain Mm -hmm. uh, where the robbery charge was reduced and the drug charge was dropped and it was changed to carrying a concealed weapon. Now, at this time in, in... uh, St. Louis, there were several drug organizations, and the one associated with Griffin and Quentin Moss, the victim in this case, was the Heyman Drug organi- Organization, and that was run by Dennis Heyman. Uh, Dennis's brother, Larry Heyman, served as probably like a lieutenant or a second-in-command, and then Dennis Gant, Griffin, Michael Black, Akins, and Derek Foley were the next level in, I guess, managerial sort of Mm -hmm. roles. Uh, And then Reginald Griffin and Peter Robinson were just below them. And then at the bottom of that food chain was Quentin Moss also known as Quentin. Mm -hmm. He was 19 years old, just getting started. He had lived with his parents um, in that neighborhood, but he had been kind of moving around in the period before he died. Uh, Dennis Heyman in 1979 was convicted of murder and sent to prison. He continued to run the organization from prison for a period of time. And then it began breaking down with infighting and everybody probably trying to, you know, become top dog. Uh, In January of 1980, Dennis Griffin went to a party with uh, Quentin Moss and a couple of other people. He apparently went with Quentin to Quentin's house and then left Quentin's house and was found shot to death in an alley 
behind Quentin's home or Quentin's parents' home uh, later uh-huh. that, that night, early the next morning. Quentin Moss was initially arrested, but there was nothing tying him to Dennis Griffin's murder, and so he was not held, and he was never charged. The okay. word on the street was either Quentin Moss did it or Quentin Moss set Dennis up for someone else. Mm-hmm. And I believe word on the street had Michael Aikens as one of those someone else's. So in the months between January and May 13, 1980, the Griffins, Reggie, a nephew of Dennis, and Larry, Dennis's brother, were apparently out looking for Michael Aikens, looking for Quentin Moss, and... The word on the street, once again, was that they were out to get Quentin Moss and Michael Akins. Mm-hmm. Um, so as word on the street, you know, whether it's reliable or not remains to be seen. On May 13, 1980, there was a drive-by shooting at Sarah Avenue and Olive Street, which injured Robert Campbell. Campbell was standing next to Quentin Moss. Quentin Moss was not shot, but there was a uh, a bullet strike on his bicycle. And when he came home very upset and very agitated, he told his mother, somebody shot at me. Okay. That... Later that afternoon, Larry Griffin was riding in a Cadillac with Reggie Griffin, and that Cadillac happened to match the description given to police by Robert Campbell as the vehicle that was involved in the drive-by shooting. The exception is Robert Campbell apparently thought it was a four-door vehicle, and the vehicle that Larry Griffin and Reggie Griffin were in, Reggie was driving, was a two-door vehicle. That's the only distinction. It was the same color. It was like black uh, black with brown, or brown over black. Mm-hmm. Cadillac. It was two-door, not four-door. That was the only difference. Uh, there was a police chase, so they didn't pull over. And it's important to mention that this drug gang... They had a system for weapons and cars. They would have straw purchasers, straw man purchasers buy their weapons. And then the weapons would be stashed at a safe house. And when they needed them, they'd go get them, but they wouldn't carry them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all the time. And for cars, they would buy multiple cars and title them in either names of straight, honest citizens or or they would title them in variations of their own names or they would make up names and title them in false names so that they would be driving legal, legitimate cars while engaged in their criminal activity. Mm -hmm. So more likely than not, they didn't flee because that was a stolen car. But it was a car that had been involved in a drive-by shooting, and they didn't, you know, they weren't anxious to talk to police. 
but they crashed and they were arrested. Um, apparently, during that investigation, Robert Campbell expressed fear of Larry Griffin and refused to cooperate with police. So charges were never filed. Okay. And apparently, Quentin Moss never cooperated with the police. Hmm. So um, that was that. So we've got a few weeks, or a little bit, oh, a little bit more than a month before right. the the shooting death of Quentin Moss. We have another drive-by shooting in the same location in which Reggie Griffin and Larry Griffin are suspected to be linked because they are shortly afterwards a short distance away seen driving a vehicle that matches the description given by the victim, but for the number of doors on the car. Okay. Um, and, you know, like, I, my mom had a boyfriend who, who liked Lincoln Town cars. And when you looked at a Lincoln uh-huh. Town car, you just assumed it had four doors because it was right. so big. It was a but he had yeah. a two-door one. And some of those Cadillacs looked big enough to have four doors, but they were only two-door. You know, so, but like I said, two doors, four doors, it was the same color, it was the same year, it was the same, you know, color scheme. It was basically the same, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and the only reason Larry Griffin... And Reggie Griffin weren't charged is because Robert Campbell said, I don't know who did it. I'm not I'm not saying nothing about the Griffins. He was afraid that the Griffins were going to kill him. And I okay. I think he actually left I think he actually left Saint Louis and refused to cooperate. So um, So then on June 26, 1980, a, a it wasn't a patrol officer. I have that a patrol officer in the um, in the outline, but it, he was actually Larry Griffin was seen leaving a known Heyman safe house where drugs and and guns were kept by a narcotics detective who was familiar with Larry Griffin and who was familiar mm-hmm. with the Heyman safe houses. And he was seen getting into a uh, an older blue vehicle, but by the time the detective was able to make a U-turn and circle back, the car was gone. Uh, but he knows it was Larry Griffin. He doesn't know who the other two, he was with two men. He doesn't know who those men were, but one of them was wearing a distinctive red and white cap. Okay. Uh, he also saw one of them was carrying a carbine, a, a carbine rifle. Okay. Um, so a guy who we're going to call Carl Doe and another gentleman by the name of Robert Fitzgerald went to, on the afternoon of June 26, went to Sarah Avenue and Olive Street where Quentin Moss peddled his drugs to buy drugs from him. Uh, Fitzgerald was something of a gangster 
Uh, he had turned evidence on um, criminal figures in Boston and was actually in St. Louis living in a motel and in the witness protection program okay. at the time. But he apparently could not leave the criminal life behind. And so he was associating with the same elements, drugs and and you know, not so not so squeaky clean people, uh, in in St. Louis that he had probably associated with in Boston. Um, he was a white guy. And he had a, an old Delta 88 and apparently ordered their drugs from Quentin Moss. When they went back to Fitzgerald's car, it wouldn't start. So then Carl began working on fixing the car. Mm-hmm. And while Carl is working on fixing the car, a blue 68 Impala turns onto the street. And I'm not quite sure which street, where they came from and what street they were on. So it was either they were either on Olive Street and the car came from Sarah or they were on Sarah Avenue and the car came from Olive. Um, but anyway, the car comes up and the two men in the car open fire, one with a revolver and one with a carbine rifle. Quentin Moss is hit 13 times. Okay. Some feet away from him is a guy by the name of Wallace Connor. He is struck Mm -hmm. in the buttocks. Now, there was apparently a guy named Peter Robinson who was sort of uh, the, you know, the manager for Quentin Moss. Um, he was also there, but he wasn't hit. Fitzgerald wasn't hit and Doe wasn't hit. Mm-hmm. Um, the police respond to the shooting and... Quentin Moss is dead. Wallace Connor is wounded, taken to the hospital, but he doesn't know nothing, didn't see nothing, has no idea. And he, too, left the hospital and went into the wind. He wasn't hanging around. He wasn't going to let whoever killed Quentin Moss come back and finish the job with him. He was not having it. And so he completely, huh? Not after 18 shots. Not happening. Well, 13 and 14 that struck. Uh, I don't know. I don't think they ever said how many exactly were fired. Now, at the scene, they had 38 uh, ammunition spent shells and mm-hmm. the carbine shells. Um, Fitzgerald per- provided a description of the vehicle and license plate number to detectives. The detective who saw Griffin provided his name to detectives. Um, mm-hmm. And when Fitzgerald was interviewed at the police station, he picked Griffin out of a a photo array as one of the shoot as one of the shooters. 
he wasn't able to identify the second shooter or the driver of the vehicle. And he was never able to identify the second shooter or driver of the vehicle. He identified Griffin as being the front seat passenger uh, shooting the revolver. Okay. Later that afternoon, evening, the Impala was found, and mm-hmm. Fitzgerald was taken to, to view it, and he confirmed that's the vehicle. Uh, inside that vehicle, there were documents linking it to Ronnie Thomas Bay, mm-hmm. and there was a traffic ticket issued to Rich, Reggie Griffin, also found in the vehicle. They further found the 38 caliber revolver and the carbine rifle. I think the rifle was in the back seat and the revolver was in the trunk. Finally, they found the distinctive red and white hat observed by the detective on one of the men that was leaving the safe house with Griffin. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Griffin, Reggie, Griffin and two others were questioned and brought in, but there were no charges filed at that time, and they were not held. Okay. And part of that may have been due to the fact that Fitzgerald left St. Louis. Right. Um, that makes sense. The chronology is a little, a little bit. A little funky. Complicated. Yeah complicated. Right. And I think the way the way Missouri's the way Missouri's things uh I guess the way their their criminal system works if Fitzgerald's not there to say testify before a grand jury then they can't do anything. Mm-hmm. They can't use a prior statement or something because they can't find him or you know he's deceased or whatever. Uh, and that may be a, a kind of um, unique to Missouri law. So then on December, on or around December 3rd, 1980, there is a second drive-by shooting. And killed was a uh, guy by the name of Sylvester Crawford. There was also evidence linking that to Larry Griffin. And it was shortly after Sylvester Crawford's shooting that Griffin, Reggie, and two others were arrested again. And then in April of 1981, they were able to indict Griffin because he's the only one who's ever identified. Right. Nobody identified Reggie. Nobody identified Ronnie Thomas. Um, and while they suspect that Reggie was involved, they don't have any evidence linking him. Right. While Ronnie Thomas Bay definitely provided them with a vehicle, there's nobody that places him in the vehicle at the time of the shooting. Uh, Larry Griffin was indicted for capital murders of Quentin Moss and Sylvester Crawford. Of course, the cases mm-hmm. were severed. Uh, he went to trial on Quentin Moss first. And one of the interesting things, I don't know how, but Larry Griffin had money to retain an attorney. 
And this attorney is one who had represented him in other cases at other times. Okay. And I don't quite know how that could be because Larry Griffin did not seem like someone of means. But he was not defended by the public defender's office. He was defended by a private attorney. Lisa, I, I think we established that he's part of a uh, a uh, a little bit of a syndicate, so to speak. So uh, that probably got something to do with it, in my mind. A, more likely than not, yeah. Although he yeah. wasn't a member of the Heyman organization. Oh, okay. He was kind of a freelance guy. Uh, well, and it and it. It could be. I am kind of suspecting that Larry Griffin was some kind of fixer. Mm-hmm. Okay. So perhaps that was a lucrative, a lucrative job for him. Okay. So uh, his trial was was held June twenty second, nineteen eighty one, to June twenty seventh, nineteen eighty one. Um. Mm-hmm. The prosecution case, there was the prior attempt on Moss. There was the testimony from uh, Fitzgerald linking Larry Griffin to the murder. There was the testimony of the officer uh, observing Griffin coming out of the safe house and getting into the vehicle that matched the description of the vehicle which was identified by Fitzgerald. And then there was the evidence Mm -hmm. found in the vehicle, which was consistent with evidence found at the crime scene and evidence shown at the autopsy to have been, um, excuse me, the cause of death of Quentin Moss. Griffin's defense was the alibi, was going to be an alibi. And that would have worked but for the fact that after Griffin's witness testified, the prosecutor contacted the publication the witness claimed to have called on the day after the murder and found Mm -hmm. out that the call was placed on the day of the murder. Mm -hmm. So it was basically, it was like a, a, a penny saver type where you place the ads for sales and the guy had something to sell. He placed an ad. He claimed Larry Griffin was with him on June 26, 1980, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon when the person who purchased the item from him came to buy it and pick it up. And mm-hmm. he claimed he remembered because the next day he called and canceled the ad. Well, the prosecutor contacted the, the magazine or, or newspaper and they said, oh, no, he called and canceled the ad on the 26th, which mm-hmm. would mean that the sale was the 25th, which is the day before mm-hmm. Quentin Moss's murder. Um, and another interesting note is that the strategy of Griffin's attorney was to try and beat the Moss case hoping, because it was the weaker of the two cases, 
that he could get him a better deal on the property. So, um, and uh, one of the things that was admitted uh, was the, they did admit hearsay testimony regarding the May 13th, 1980 attempt. It was admitted on the excited utterance exception, which is basically, you know, you're so under the influence of the events that uh, you just say what comes to mind and there's an, in, there, that's, you know, an indicator of reliability or an indicia of reliability to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the case went to the jury on June 27th. And after their deliberations, they found uh, Larry Griffin guilty of capital murder. I think they did the penalty phase hearing afterwards. And the jury found the drive-by shooting, which could have hurt or killed multiple people, uh, was an aggravator. And so Griffin was found guilty of, was found eligible for the death penalty. Now, there was a period between the finding by the jury recommending death and the actual death sentence. On August 7, 1981, the judge denied Griffin's motion for a new trial and sentenced him to death. And that was, you know, that was the way the process worked in Missouri. And that's kind of the way the process worked in the 1980s where um, the jury made a recommendation, but the judge could have gone either way. Um, Griffin filed a direct appeal with the Missouri Supreme Court, and the issues he raised at that time, and it's important to keep track of of the issues that he raised, um, the jury, there was a, he claimed there was a flaw in the jury instructions, regarding circumstantial evidence and um, I can't remember what the other one was. Uh, apparently the, the jury charges had been amended and the, he basically thought the amended instruction should have been the one that was used, but that amended instruction wasn't due to be used until January of 1982. Okay. Um, so the basically the Supreme Court, Missouri Supreme Court, found there was no error with the judge's jury instructions. And then I think it was reasonable doubt and circumstantial evidence. And then they all he also complained about the hearsay evidence admitted through officers' statements, officers' testimony regarding statements made to them by Robert Campbell. And testimony of Missouri Moss regarding statements made to her by Quentin about the May 13th shooting. Um, He also claimed that portions of the pre-sentence investigation report should have been stricken by the judge and he claimed the death penalty in Missouri was unconstitutional. Uh, The Missouri Supreme Court affirmed his conviction on December 20th, 1983. They issued one opinion 
And then in December of 1983, they kind of withdrew part of that opinion and reissued. But ultimately, they affirmed uh, his conviction. They found, again, there was no error in the jury instructions that the statements of Campbell in Missouri and Quentin Moss through the police officers and and, uh, Missouri Moss were properly admitted via the excited utterance exception. And um, so that was basically, you know, pretty much it. And the United States Supreme Court denied cert on October 1st, 1984. Mm -hmm. Then uh, Griffin filed a state post-conviction claim, which is known as a Rule 27.26 motion in Missouri. Uh, He filed initially a pro se claim, and then he was appointed counsel, and that counsel amended his claim. Um, I don't know what the claims were precisely, because Mm -hmm. they didn't really elaborate on it on the claims or issues raised in any of the opinions that I read. Uh, More likely than not, it was some of the issues raised regarding the jury instructions in in the direct appeal. Um, And then there may have been one or two other evidentiary issues raised. Um, Ultimately, the claims were denied on February 23, 1987, and the Missouri Appellate Court affirmed on February 16, 1988. Mm-hmm. Then uh, Griffin moved on to federal habeas corpus, where he was represented by the same attorney who had represented him in state post-conviction. Um, his initial writ was denied in July of 1990, um, that decision was affirmed by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeal on October 11th, 91. But then in July of 1992, they granted rehearing request made pro se by Griffin. Okay. And they reversed and remanded to the district court so that Griffin could raise claims regarding ineffective assistance of trial, direct appeal, and post-conviction counsel. So claims that his claims weren't adequately addressed by the courts are not entirely, not being entirely honest. Mm -hmm. Because he actually filed four amendments of his federal habeas corpus claim. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were evidentiary hearings held on October, starting on October 6, 1993. I don't know how long the hearings lasted. And um, the relief was denied in on October 25, 1993. Once again, the Eighth Circuit remanded back to the district court for more, I guess, more specific findings and conclusions um, mm-hmm. on February 24th, 94, and then the district court 
amended or, or made more specific findings and conclusions and denied relief on April 25th, 1994. And that was ultimately affirmed in August of 94. Griffin um, appealed to the United States Supreme Court or filed, filed a writ for cert, uh, for cert to the U.S. Supreme Court. That was denied on May 15th, 1995. Now, during his appellate process, after his direct appeal, an execution date was set. But that date, you know, re- did not remain active because he filed the state post-conviction claim. And then after right. that appeal, another date was set. Missouri, I think, wants to keep the process moving. So uh-huh. when the courts in Missouri, when the state courts or the appellate courts resolve a an appeal in a death penalty case, at least at that time, they would go ahead and set a date. State Supreme Court sets the dates. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and so that's you know that's what they did. But when he filed federal habeas corpus, it, it again was not did not remain active. On May 19, 1995, the state Supreme Court set uh, Griffin's execution date for June 21, 1995. Um, Claims of actual innocence were already beginning to uh, be made on Griffin's behalf, and part of that was, uh, in fact, I think what you found deals with the claims that were being made in 95 at the time of the execution. Uh, uh, basically, you yeah. know, Robert Fitzgerald was a, he was a criminal and he was, uh, you know, he, he was a liar and he couldn't be trusted and he got a deal and his attorney was incompetent and um, they claimed to have new eyewitnesses that substantiated Griffin's claim of innocence. Uh, They claimed to have other eyewitnesses who knew Larry Griffin and knew he wasn't involved. Uh, And all that was presented to the federal U.S. District Court, the federal district court. And the federal district court did not find any of that evidence sufficient to undermine confidence in Larry Griffin's verdict. One of the interesting things is these witnesses named other people as being involved. Well, we know two other people were involved. Right. They just were never identified. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of these witnesses said Reggie Griffin was involved. Well, if Reggie Griffin was involved, why the hell do you think Larry wouldn't have been involved too? Do you honestly think Larry wouldn't have been involved? You know, I mean, May 13th, who's who's with Reggie in that Cadillac but Larry Griffin? Right. So ex- exonerate, you know, inculpating somebody else does not exonerate Larry Griffin. I would agree. Um, and, you know, again, all this stuff was admitted in the federal district court at hearings and the federal district court did not find those witnesses. And you have to remember too, 
what is a what is in the media articles nine times out of ten is solely the uh defense version. Hmm. Yeah. That and makes sense. it's it's because the it ignores gonna be out front with the media coverage. That makes sense, I guess. Right. The other thing is that it's it's you know, the defense is not gonna talk about how the witness folded like a cheap suit on cross examination. Right. How the witness's entire testimony was called into question during cross examination. Um now they also make claims that the prosecution suppressed information about a witness or witnesses who could testify that Griffin was not involved uh, in the murder of Quentin Moss and or the uh, attempted murder of Robert Campbell and Quentin Moss. And that was Robert Campbell. They claimed they suppressed information about Robert Campbell. Well, they didn't suppress information about Robert Campbell. Robert Campbell refused to cooperate. Robert Campbell disappeared. Robert Campbell went to ground. He went off the grid. He went under the radar because he did not want to be involved because he did not want to die. And and it's worth mentioning here that there were cases involving Reggie Griffin later in which there were allegations that witnesses against Reggie Griffin were killed. So what makes you think that that's not a possibility with witnesses against Larry Griffin or potential witnesses against Larry Griffin? Or that that might not be in the mind of a witness. True. Against Larry Griffin. Um, Another weird claim was that Griffin was left-handed and Fitzgerald said the shooter was right-handed. That doesn't mean a hill of beans. I'm left-handed, but I shoot with my right hand. Right. I'm left-handed, but I throw with my right hand. Yeah, most people I've seen, you know, that are left-handed are ambidextrous. Yeah. So, uh, and then, and then another thing is that his fingerprints weren't found on the car in the car on the weapons. Well, that's not really that unusual. Mm-hmm. And it's not really a difficult thing to do. Yeah, when you leave the car, you wipe down everything you touched. Or you wear gloves the minute you get in the car. Mm-hmm. And there's no witnesses that say whether or not these people weren't wearing gloves. You know. So um, that's, again, a lot of it, I would say most, if not all, of the 1995 innocence claims were presented in the federal district court in 1993, and they were not found to be sufficient to prove Larry Griffin's actual innocence. Um, Right. Yes, it's a high bar. 
yes, it's a difficult burden to meet. But that is, you know, that's an important, it needs to be a high bar. Mm -hmm. Because if it's a low bar, then way too many people are going to pass under it. And you're going to have people who killed people getting out on the street very easily and endangering. I can can see your point. I I mean, it's hard. It's beyond a reasonable doubt for the prosecution. Why shouldn't it be beyond a reasonable doubt for the defense to disprove it afterwards? Well, no, and that's the thing. The, the, The only time reasonable doubt comes into play is during the trial. The prosecution has to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. In the post-conviction process, the defendant has to produce clear and convincing evidence that undermines confidence in the verdict. It's not even it's not even a reasonable doubt level, but it has to be clear and convincing evidence. Um, for example, uh, you know, clear and convincing evidence would be if they did DNA testing on uh, one of the weapons and Larry Griffin's DNA wasn't on it. That would probably be clear and right. convincing given that he's the only one identified and the only one linked. Um, You know, that might have proved to be clear and convincing, but uh, as I understand it, there were no, there were no physical, there was no physical evidence to test. There was no physical evidence to um, try to get any answers from because it was a shooting. And the perpetrators of the shooting were in a vehicle several feet or farther from Quentin Moss. So there's not going to be an exchange of of body fluid or blood or anything else. So um, although I think I did see a claim somewhere that, you know, Larry Griffin, the clothes he was arrested in weren't bloody. So that proves he didn't do it. You know, so... Um, he made, uh, Griffin made several stay requests. He, uh, even tried to get a stay with the U.S. Supreme Court, which was denied. And on June 21st, 1995, he was executed. Now, something I don't understand in all this is why the NAACP LDF would wait 10 years before beginning to investigate. I wouldn't disagree with that. One thing I will say, though, Lisa, I I mean, maybe it wasn't on their radar until then. I don't know. Maybe somebody, you know, you gotta, you gotta also take into account, maybe, maybe the people that brought it to the attention finally got it to their attention, you know, 10 years later. So I wouldn't say that's as big a factor to me. Well, I I would say the problem I have with that is that there's no explanation of how 
how they became involved in it in any way, shape, or form. They haven't been, they haven't been forthcoming. And one of the things that's mentioned in the circuit attorney's report is that someone anonymously provided their report to members of Quentin Moss's family. Okay. I think is a dick move. Right. Um, and, and it, it incenses me sometimes when people like the Stites family, people say they believe the lies the police told them. And why are they believing the lies the police told them? And they're fooled and blah, blah, blah. It's like, leave them alone. They are entitled to believe what they want to believe. Whether you agree with it or not. I don't think anybody, so, you know, in this culture we have today, you know, a lot of people are talking about victim blaming. To be honest, you're blaming the victim of this crime's family for, you know, even if there was a mistake made. It's on the state. It's not on the victim's family. And that's unacceptable to ever go after a victim's family, in my opinion. Right. Totally agree. That would be like so, that would be like people going after uh, the West Memphis Threes. Well, I mean, I guess technically some did. No, I, people did. Todd, Todd Moore, yeah. Dana Moore, John Mark Byers all said they used to get people, phone calls from people, really people blaming God. them for poor Damien being in prison on death row. Right. And that's funny. When it had fuck all to do with them. Exactly. They're just, they just happen to have these kids that unfortunately met a tragic end. And yeah, no, that's unacceptable to me. Have some decency and some class. So um, I may have inadvertently used these in the LDF. Primary, primarily, the LDS conclusion was, first of all, um, so you can just, I'm just going to scratch through all that stuff. Um, first of all, they found through three witnesses, they claimed that Robert Fitzgerald was never at that shooting scene. Okay. Because Moss's sister... Wallace Connor, the the guy who was shot in the ass, and one other witness all said they did not see a white guy at the scene at all. There were no white people in that neighborhood at all. Okay. Um, So Fitzgerald was lying about being at the scene and seeing and – but interestingly enough, later on in their report, they claim Fitzgerald has told them, and I think he told another defense investigator for Griffin prior to Griffin's execution, that the police used a suggestive technique during his photo array identification process. Okay. Where he basically told Griffin's investigators that um, he got the photo array, and then the detective pulled Griffin's picture and said, "This is the guy," or something is along there those lines. Sort of evidence to back that up? I 
Well, that's what Fitzgerald told one of Griffin's. Again, that's what Fitzgerald told one of Griffin's investigators prior to Griffin's execution in 1995. Because by the time the NAACP started, by the time the NAACP started their reinvestigation, Fitzgerald had been dead a year. Okay. Um, So, but it's ironic because Fitzgerald was a liar who said he was there when he wasn't, but he's worthy of belief when he says the police Use the suggestive technique to get him to identify Griffin. Well, yeah. Do you I mean, see the hypocrisy? To, yeah, it's the convenient facts you choose to allow into your narrative to fit your narrative. So, um, and uh, you know that was the primary one. They had other witnesses. Um, they claim that Robert Campbell would have said that Larry Griffin was not involved. Um, but that was kind of speculative. Uh, it was based on statements Campbell made to an investigator. Again, years before during Griffin's post-conviction appeals. Um which was contradicted by statements Campbell actually made, uh, including but not limited to the fact that he was scared of Griffin and he didn't want to, you know, he didn't know nothing. He didn't see nobody. He didn't see nothing. He didn't know. Um, And they claimed that he was hidden, but, you know, he wasn't hidden. He disappeared. He hid himself. The prosecutor didn't hide him. He hid himself. Uh, and I think he, I think he admitted that to Griffin's investigators whenever he, you know, was interviewed that he, he wasn't hidden by the prosecutor. Uh, and then finally, Wallace Connor uh, claimed that uh, he was never spoken to by police. He was never spoken to by prosecutors. Uh, and had he been, he would have said Larry Griffin didn't wasn't involved in the shooting at all. Uh, and he was there at the press conference that the LDF had. And that's another thing, you know, it's kind of like Kathleen Zellner and, and LDF, they like these press conferences. And they put their side out there, but they don't, you know, the, that doesn't happen for the prosecution. And another thing that really, really, really pisses me off is when the prosecution does something like that, it's bad, it's wrong, it's illegal, it's against all the rules, and yet when defense side does it, it's okay. I think think that the prosecution and the state need to get better about how they use the media. The defense is light years ahead in media relations, I I believe. And that's something that the prosecution and the states, individual states, need to get better at. I think, I, I think really, because it's very difficult, because if a prosecutor says something in the media, that could come back and bite them in the ass. In post-conviction. 
Al West Memphis Three. A la oh, West. Oh, oh, a la Ronnie Reed. Do you think you have? Yeah, true. I mean, a la Rodney Reed. Curtis Davis gave an interview to CNN, and Rodney Reed's attorneys used that statement to try to, you know, bring new claims. Right. Um, and, and And to this day, they continue to ignore the fact that the statement was not as helpful, and they continue to ignore the parts of Curtis Davis' statement that hurt Rodney Reed, one being that Curtis Davis has no doubt or had no doubt that Rodney Reed killed Stacy. Curtis mm-hmm. Davis said Jimmy Finnell would not have killed her, could not have killed her. He said he wouldn't have helped Jimmy Finnell if he had. So there are, you know, there are a lot of statements Curtis Davis made in that interview that weren't, A, weren't aired by Death Row Stories, and B, that Rodney Reed's attorneys continue to ignore. Um, I think what prosecutors need to do is start watching these attorneys, and then when they show up at post-conviction hearings as witnesses, they need mm-hmm. to start taking them to task with those statements. For example, if a an attorney gives the impression that they had more stronger evidence when they went to trial, but somehow were prevented by the judge from you know putting that evidence on, I think at a post conviction hearing, you say, "Well, you made this statement now." You know what do you what happened? What are you talking about? What witness was this? And put them in a position where, you know, they have to they're going to have to backpedal because there was no such witness. Mm-hmm. They just tell because when they're talking to a camera and a producer, they they don't have the you know they they don't have somebody. Who would know otherwise? So they can shade things in the light most favorable to their client or themselves. So, um, so that was basically their reinvestigation. Of course, they declared that Missouri had executed an innocent man. Um, and so the the circuit attorney's office in St. Louis was very disturbed and the claims and the information brought forth by the LDF did seem compelling. So the circuit attorney's office undertook an investigation and it took them about two years. Right. They came out with their report. Yeah. Uh, they talked to 80 witnesses. Oh, shit. Um, now, one of the other things, too, in the LDF, a, a lot of the people that the LDF named as potential other killers or as having been involved, they were naming dead men. 
who are not around to defend themselves. Uh, additionally, nobody they named, there was no corroboration of the statements naming those people or of the statements made by the proponents of those those suspects. Um, so, as I said, there were some flaws in the LDF methodology of their investigators. First of all, their investigators were not law enforcement, so there were some limitations as to what they could and could not do. Um, some of their methodologies were flawed in that they um, relied on a lot of hearsay and a lot of speculation, and there wasn't a lot of corroboration of information. They talked to witnesses, and they didn't show witnesses pictures of Larry Griffin, Reggie Griffin, Dennis Gant. You know, they didn't didn't have pictures of each of the players to say, is this who you're talking about? And a lot of the witnesses, a lot of the people they interviewed, they didn't use given names. They used street names. And then there may have been some confusion with the investigators as to whose street names were what. Mm-hmm. So, right. um, you know, and, and it's funny because in that element, and I don't understand it because I'm not in that element, um, but in that element, you know people by first names. You don't know last names, surnames. Uh, sometimes you know a person by a nickname, and you never know their their Christian given name or their surname. And that's a hard concept for me to uh, to understand, but it happens a lot. Right. So I mean, there's um, people that I. You know that I've met that I never knew what their actual, like you said, their given name was. So yeah, I mean. Yeah. I'm sure it's so. a little difficult to keep up. <laughs> and uh, you know, the bottom line, uh, the the city circuit attorney's investigation or reinvestigation basically corroborated Fitzgerald's statements and testimony at the time of the investigation trial of Larry Griffin. Um, One of the interesting things, too, uh, Fitzgerald was anti-death penalty. Mm -hmm. And like I said, he died a year before the the LDF investigation even began. Uh, but he was interviewed by one of Griffin's investigators during the post-conviction process. He may have even testified at the federal hearing, uh, evidentiary hearing. When he talked to a state investigator after a statement from him had been provided, by Griffin's counsel in post-conviction, 
uh, he told the state investigator that the uh, Griffin investigator had basically put Larry Griffin's life on Fitzgerald's shoulders. And so he wanted mm-hmm. to help Fitz, he wanted to help Griffin because he didn't believe in the death penalty. He didn't agree with the death penalty and he didn't want to see Griffin executed. Right. So he did what he could to help him, which is where he said, you know, one of the detectives suggested Larry Griffin to me as the suspect. But he also said he didn't recant his trial testimony. So Claims that he recanted his trial testimony were false. Um, He never admitted to lying. Uh, He never said that Griffin was not the guy. In fact, he stood behind his trial testimony, and he said, I identified Griffin because that was who I saw. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and once again, you know, you got to think if Fitzgerald was just there, you know, was just wanting to help the cops and he was just making something up, well, why wouldn't he identify all three? Good why point. wouldn't he identify the driver and identify the second shooter? Why would he he only identify one of the people? And he never received a benefit even though there were claims that he got a reduction in sentence. That wasn't. That was not the case. So, uh, and one of the people who corroborated uh, Fitzgerald's statements and testimony was Carl Doe, the man with him the day of Quentin Moss's murder, who corroborated that Fitzgerald was there. Fitzgerald was in a position to see what he claimed to have seen. And, you know, that was, you know, that was corroboration. Um, The other people saying they didn't see a white guy, uh, the CAO was able to find scene photographs and crowd photographs that showed plenty of white faces. Uh, Claims that there were no kids because Carl Doe claimed to have a child with him. Uh, or Fitzgerald claimed Carl Doe's child was with him. And, you know, they, they produced pictures of children. Uh, interestingly, Wallace Connor, uh, like Robert Campbell, Wallace Connor also feared retaliation. And Wallace Connor did not want to assist police in any way, shape, or form. So Wallace Connor left Missouri and went to Texas and ended up in legal trouble in Texas of a criminal nature. Um, Now, later, Wallace Connor also um, made some more elaborate statements that were uh, exculpatory as to Larry Griffin, but they were refuted by his original statements at the time of the shooting in which he said, I didn't see nothing. I don't know nothing. He was like Schultz in Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> I know. And you probably only know about that because of Nickelodeon. Yeah. Used to. So, um, so the CAO uh, report, the conclusion was Larry Griffin was not innocent. Um while the LDF had perhaps a noble 
intent to try to get justice for Quentin Moff and Larry Griffin's uh, and for Larry Griffin, they you know did not go about it in a in the right way. Right, because right. what they produced was speculative. It was double and triple hearsay in some places. Uh, and interestingly, you know, this is another compare and contrast. Look at what's available on Murderpedia for the LDF report. It's 11 or 12 pages. It's a summary. Right, right. The CAO report is six parts, four report, and two appendices with some, you know, supporting documentation. Um, and, you know, the, the CAO report is around 100... 2550 pages. Um, I suck at math, so um right. I could be greatly over or under. Um but yeah, I think there's a there's a 17-page section, there's a 14-page section, there's an 87-page section, and then there's like a 30-page section. I don't know what that comes out to, but I'm going to say 125 to Roughly, uh, yeah. 150 pages, roughly. Um, yeah. Now, also, it's interesting, while the LDF claimed to have provided everything to the CAO, uh, later in the process, it was determined that the LDF didn't provide everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and another interesting thing is that Quentin Moss's family refused to cooperate with the circuit attorney when the circuit attorney attempted to re-interview them about huh. their, you know, their statements to the the LDF. So, um, yeah. So, uh, but these are circumstantially. It's a very strong case for me based solely on the fact that six months later, somebody else was shot down in the same area, and Larry Griffin was involved in that, and there was evidence linking Larry Griffin to that, and he was he was given a deal after he got the death penalty for Quentin Moth and pled guilty to second-degree murder in that case so that the state wouldn't seek another death penalty on him. So he was involved in that murder. It was a drive-by shooting. Uh, May 13, 1980, there was an attempt on Quentin Moss's life in another drive-by shooting, which, again, Griffin and his nephew, Reggie, were found in a vehicle matching the description a short time later in a short distance away after that shooting. Who else could it have been? And again, identifying someone else as having been involved doesn't exonerate Larry Griffin. 
and I think it was more likely than not, Larry, Reggie, and probably Ronnie Thomas Bay, although he denies it. Um, and interestingly enough, the LDF went to Reggie Griffin and tried to get Reggie Griffin to confess. And he said, I'm not walking into a capital murder case. Right. You know, um, and, you know, they said they had a, they had, you know, that Ronnie Thomas Bay, uh, his cousin or his uncle, Jerry Lewis Bay confessed. And Jerry Lewis Bay says, um, even though I'd love to get Ronnie, or no, it's Ronnie Thomas Bay confessed to Jerry Lewis Bay. And Jerry Lewis Bay didn't know that didn't happen. Ronnie apparently confessed to one of my attorneys, but it wasn't me. Um, And that was another interesting fact that when the CAO interviewed some of these witnesses, they completely repudiated what the LDF had claimed they had said. Right. Um, Now, as someone once said, when your murder happens in hell, you're not going to have the angels as witnesses. <laughs> this was not... I've never heard that. This was... Yeah, I, I heard it on a true crime show somewhere. I don't remember which huh. one, but I loved it too. Uh, or I read it... So I, I might have read it in something I was reading about this case. Um, but, you know, I mean, this didn't happen in a nice suburban neighborhood in front of the local Catholic church with a priest and a busload of nuns as witnesses. Right. You know, it happened in inner city on a, you know, corner known as the stroll where there's a lot of drugs and prostitution. And, you know, one of the victims was a drug dealer People around him were there to buy drugs. You know, that's that's what you have. And so the LDF was talking to people in prison, and so was the CAO. And so maybe those guys in prison were just having a little fun with both of them. You know, they'll tell the investigators for the LDF one thing, tell them what they want to hear, Larry Griffin was innocent, tra-la-la. And then when the CAO comes, oh, I didn't say that. Nope, didn't say that. Because I'm sure it breaks up their day. Oh, yeah, of course. Just well. But, so that is, uh, in 2007, the CAO basically announced that Larry Griffin was, in fact, guilty. Uh, Of course, Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't agree. They think the CAO... Um, is just saying what the CAO has to say in order to prevent um, liability. So, in spite of that, and this is interesting, in July, on July 12, 2010, Larry Griffin's mother filed a wrongful death suit against St. Louis County authorities. 
What lawyer said that was a good idea? <laughs> you know, I don't know, but, well, having worked for some personal injury attorneys, plaintiff's personal injury attorneys, sometimes, even though the case does not seem that great, there's the hope that you file it and that they want to throw some money at you. Ah, settle. And you can settle it. Got you. Um, the, of course, the county attorneys filed a motion to dismiss. None of those pleadings are available online. I'm guessing, though, that one of the issues in the motion to dismiss would have probably been the time that it passed since Larry Griffin's execution, the time that it passed mm-hmm. since the LDS findings, which would have been mm-hmm. um, 15 years since his execution and five years since the LDF report. Uh, the case, she was given leave to amend, but never did. And the case was finally dismissed without prejudice on November 10th 2011, and it doesn't okay. seem to have been refiled. Okay. So, well, I mean, that's exactly what um, I would expect. Yeah, right. and I, I don't know what the stat, I don't know what the statutes are in Missouri, uh, although I can't imagine any of them would be uh, 15 years or or five years for that matter. Um, and there's a, a contract case would be 10 years, but there's no contract. Hmm. So, okay. So that's Griffin. Um, you know, I think it's one of those. It, it, it was an attempt to undermine the death penalty. Yeah. And this it would have worked beautifully. If the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office hadn't reinvestigated, talked to 80 witnesses, and put out a 125-page or 150-page report that said, oh, he's guilty. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, maybe we could have a different conversation about it being interesting if they didn't respond, basically, and have their own reinvestigation. But there's no controversy here to me. Um, If you're still arguing this after everything, I think you're, you know, I can even partially understand, uh, partially understand why the mama did what she did because, I mean, that's your child. But, man, come on now. Yeah. So... And, you know, like I said, it was worth a shot. <laughs> right. Um, so, so that's basically Larry Griffin. Uh, I think they got the right person. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think they didn't get too... I, I think they didn't get two more people who were involved... Right. But um, that is 
you know, that's unfortunate, but that's what sometimes happens. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, you got to say, um, you know, you got to look at it. If they're so desperate just to get somebody, why would they not put Reggie and Ronnie Thomas Bay in prison for the rest of their lives? Right. True. Can't disagree there. So, yeah. So, I think that's it. I think we're done. Our last live Tuesday night show. Yeah. That's true. End of an era. Oh. Oh, once again, I I think... uh, I think that... uh, I did... I did forget one important thing, Michael, oh, uh, and okay. I, I apologize. One important thing. In 1995, the Honorable Mel Carnahan, governor of the state of Missouri, denied Larry Griffin's request for clemency. Okay. Are you any relation to I any Missouri know. Carnahan? I've always wondered that if I was related to him, just because, I mean, let's be honest, how many Carnahan's are around, but, you know, I don't know. It's probably a lot of them in Ireland. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. So, I'm, I'm sorry, what were you saying? Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think this is going to end up actually helping, allowing us to bring a better product to the audience as well. So I think this is going to turn out for the best. Oh, yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be a lot easier. Um, listeners probably don't care, but one of the one of the struggles for me is that this new job, I actually have my job to do. I can't mm-hmm. spend all day Tuesday working on my show stuff where I right, could do exactly. that at my other job. And I used to do it at my other job. But um, so it's been a little bit different. And I told I told one of the attorneys I work with that today, and he just laughed. He thought that was the funniest thing. He's like, you don't do that? I said, of course not. So... Now, at lunch, I'll, if I have stuff to read or I'll work on the outline, you know, that's my lunch break. I'm clocked out. But I don't do it. And part of that's because I like the job. And I like what I'm doing. So I don't want something else to do. So, uh, but this is our last live Tuesday show. And then we'll be moving to Sunday on June 6th. You want me to go right. ahead and do the outro? Absolutely. If you want All to right. put a bow on it, we can do it. Let, let's put a bow on it. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us on Tuesday, June 1st, 2021 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 12, State of Texas versus Lester Bauer. 
Michael and I will be off, but we recorded the episode about Bauer's case after unforeseen conflicts postponed. Then join us on Sunday, June 6, 2021, at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for episode 13, State of Illinois versus Shan Fieldman and Talia Fonts. Fieldman was awarded a new trial by the United States District Court in Illinois, a decision that was affirmed by the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in early 2020. We'll talk about the case against Fieldman and Fonts and the intervention of Kathleen Zellner in Fieldman's case. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.